and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose, and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode, we take on a specific possible or not-so-possible future scenario. We always start with a little field trip into the future to check out what is going on, and then we teleport back to today to talk to experts about how that world that we just heard might really go down. Got it? Great. This episode, we are starting in the year 2060. Okay, it's time to get started. So, guys, 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 hello, hello, welcome back, um, everyone, to our debate club. Um, hope you're ready for this. We're gonna have our our next debate of the week uh, for this semester. Uh, first, I have an announcement though. If you want to join the club on the annual field trip, and if you guys Ooh. heard about that, the field trip, Heck yeah. please make sure that you filled out your permission slip. Uh, it's in your student portal, so check that. Okay. Yeah. yeah I- if you and you have, if you don't have if I don't have your signed permission slip, then you, you can't go. Well, if I was grading you, yes, I would give you all extra credit. But this is just um, this is for you to become better debaters and more informed this here at this, in our club. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. Boring business aside, let's get to debating. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's the, that's the spirit. We've got Charlie and Grace up next. Come on up, you guys. We're gonna have you argue about satellites. Right. Yep, this is the case, uh, just to re- refresh everyone's memory, this is the, qu- the case in question. It happened in 2027. A group of looters were caught stealing from a temple in India. The satellites were able to identify them, and all four were brought to trial for stealing priceless antiquities. But they argued that the satellite, should n- the satellite imagery should not be admissible because they had no idea that they were even being watched and that the, they knew that the surveillance uh, violated their privacy. They felt that way. Um, Charlie, Grace? You ready? Uh, should we? Uh, Charlie, you can start first. You're going to argue in favor of these looters. Okay. Oh, I, I was told I was going to be anti. All right. Uh, improvisation. <gasps> that's my strong suit. <laughs> I think. I thought I was arguing against. Oh, wait. I'm arguing for it. Oh, oh. okay. Great, great, great. Let's start with yeah. Grace. So, Grace, you're going to start, and you're arguing in favor of the looters. Okay. All right. In the past 10 years, the 700 satellites launched into space have given us massive amounts of information, ranging from climate change to criminal activity. Satellite technology has helped police solve murders, discover mass graves, and shown which major cities are releasing the most greenhouse gases. The question of whether or not this data is valid in a court case has gone mostly unanswered. Some believe it isn't because they see satellite photos as an invasion of privacy. However, satellites are mostly used by human rights organizations, such as the Human Rights Watch, with the intent to make the world a safe place to live. Satellite technology can only help us. For example, 1,000 illegal landfills pop up each year in Europe, causing huge problems for the neighboring cities. In one region of Italy, certain types of cancer are up 80% more than usual due to nearby waste dumps. The English government spends 16 million pounds a year putting out landfill fires, not to mention the massive impact they have on climate change. In retaliation to this, air and space evidence was developed through University College London, a program that uses satellite technology to find illegal landfills faster than the authorities can. If satellites can expose so many things that normal cameras can't, then why can't the data they provide be used in a court? If a satellite photo could determine whether or not someone was was guilty of a crime, it would be totally illogical for a court to dismiss the evidence on the grounds it was produced by a satellite. Okay. All right, Charlie, ready for your your, your side now. Yep. All right, so um, I'm arguing against this. So 
uh, as we've already brought up the elephant in room, that it's a really major breach of privacy, which some people really value. You know, they don't, uh, you know, they have uh, personal intimate conversations and uh, do things that they wouldn't want other people to, to see or, you know, really know about. And I think I can re respect that. And, you know, sure, uh, there's sort of a line being drawn when you're looting from a temple that's very important to people in India. But I think that um, save for those very important locations, I think that satellite Im uh, imagery and biometric scanners should not really be used to monitor the population. Okay. Yeah. Grace, you have a question for Charlie. Okay. If a satellite photo could determine whether or not someone was guilty of committing a crime, why wouldn't you use it in court? I don't really have a uh, I don't really have a rebuttal to that. I think this is a really um a really complicated topic because uh satellites can be used to stop uh a lot of crimes such as that, but at the same time it uh, it's kind of like it's kind of like punishing the entire class for one joker who's acting out of line, you know? Like, like you might be praying at a temple about something that you don't want other people to know about. Like maybe a relative of yours is sick and you don't want that being uh, picked up by a satellite or you don't want people to know that you're going somewhere in the first place because, oh, I don't know, maybe, you're, maybe your family uh, worships a different uh, Hindu di deity than they do. I mean, I, I'm taken from the scenario here, but um, you know how the police need a warrant to conduct an investigation, right? Why shouldn't that be the case with satellite imagery? Why should the police just be able to say, oh, uh, someone just happened to be picked up uh, by the satellite here. Well, don't mind if I do. Can I, can I say something? <laughs> of course. Okay. Um, so in a, a lot of crimes have, for example, like when uh, police brutality is the evidence of that is taken on cell phones mm -hmm. and the people who usually um, take those videos don't have a warrant and it can still be used like as evidence to maybe pun to punish those police. Well, right. That's uh, I'm pretty sure that'd be considered as uh, as eyewitness evidence and not can not really need a warrant because that's what someone saw. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah. All right. And uh, Charlie, time for you to ask Grace a question. All right. So I'm waiting for this. Um, my big question is who would pay for all the satellites? Because some smaller businesses are not in a million years going to be able to pay for something like that. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I don't think it's very likely that shopping malls would launch satellites for security. Fair I enough. think they're kind of okay with the security cameras all right. for now. But, um, for my research, I kind of found that already sat there's 700 satellites are going to be up in the ten year in ten years, and there's already a ton in orbit right now, and most of the people who own them are um, they're like governments or like NASA owns a lot of satellites, and so they're already being paid for. The government is trying to advance technology. I know France has a bunch of satellites going up, so it's coming from the government's own treasury and the companies or the startups, it comes from their money. All right, well, my point uh, my point is that um, a lot of that these satellites in particular um, are not gonna be used for monitoring climate change. Well, 
actually they are kind yes. of right now. <laughs> um, sorry, that was no, no. It's uh, fine. Sorry, go ahead, was, go ahead. That was so mean. Oh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> all share and love and debate, Grace. Um, That's the spirit. <laughs> uh, go ahead, Grace. The question. Sorry, what was the question? They're not going to be used for... <laughs> oh, God. Um, um, they're not well, going to be used for climate change? Uh, yeah, for monitoring okay. climate change. Yeah. Um, well, a lot of satellites are being... They are being used for monitoring climate change because it's a really big problem that does need to be fixed. Charlie, think- Grace, you, you both have done an incredibly compelling job today. This has been a very lively conversation. I really appreciate both of your points that you've made and, and just your willingness to get up and, and debate it out. Let's give them a hand. Awesome. Charlie and Grace. Charlie and Grace. And uh, thank you, everyone, for meeting this week. I uh, had a lot of fun with you. And don't forget permission slips for that field trip, all right? Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Excited. All right. I'll see you next week. Have a good weekend. Okay, today we are headed up into orbit. Right now, there are about 2,000 active satellites circling our planet. And many of them are looking down at us with sensors and cameras that pick up everything from chlorophyll levels in the Great Lakes to the movement of tanks in China. In the next 10 years, experts say that humans are on track to quintuple the number of satellites in orbit. SpaceX alone plans to send 12,000 tiny satellites to space by 2027. Not only are there going to be more satellites, they will also be equipped with better and better sensors. Last week, we talked about the privacy concerns of facial recognition. Systems that are installed in cities or on cop cars, in the terrestrial world around us. But what happens when surveillance goes up? When you are being watched all the time, not just by your own government or your gym or your school, but by swaths of satellites that you can't even see. What happens when we can catch bad guys from space? Well, let's start this episode the way we're going to start every episode in this mini season with a crime. And for a while, the evidence of this crime lived in an undisclosed warehouse. This sort of secret... Um, totally like End of Indiana Jones-esque storehouse somewhere in Brooklyn. This is Sarah Parkak, a professor of anthropology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and the author of a recent book called Archaeology from Space, How the Future Shapes Our Past. And Sarah was in this warehouse in Brooklyn to look at artifacts, stolen artifacts. They very kindly invited me in Um, to kind of observe and to give them some um, expert uh, advice about the objects. These artifacts had been confiscated from a collector named Joseph A. Lewis II, a known collector of Egyptian antiquities from Virginia. And he had basically ordered all of these Egyptian antiquities from a known Jordanian importer of illegal antiquities, like beyond sketchy. And the ICE folks kind of had their number. They knew that a lot of documents had been forged or falsified. Yes, you heard that right. ICE, as in Immigration and Customs Enforcement, as in the same agency that is currently housing immigrants in concentration camps at the border of the United States. One of their other jobs when they are not terrorizing immigrant communities is to regulate the movement of potentially stolen antiquities across the border. 
and this is like the one branch of ICE that I don't think should be shut down. They're responsible for essentially looking at all the things that are coming into the U.S., being shipped in, whether it's via container or by some kind of mail service. And in this case, one of the artifacts that ICE confiscated was a sarcophagus. And like this gorgeous sarcophagus had been sawn in half and sent through the USPS. Now, listen, I'm not really like a believer in ghosts or whatever, but man, sawing a sarcophagus in half just seems like a bad idea. Like that is definitely how you get cursed. Don't do that. Also, it is bad for archaeologists who might want to study the piece intact. And it's also just plain disrespectful to the culture, not to mention the poor dead person who thought they were going to have a nice, peaceful afterlife and instead wound up in some rich guy's living room after being cut in half and manhandled by ordinary post office employees. Rude. Anyway, so Sarah is in this warehouse in Brooklyn and she catches a glimpse of this sarcophagus and it stops her dead in her tracks. So I looked at the sarcophagus, which was absolutely gorgeous. The most beautiful blacks and and reds and oranges. One of the most beautiful sarcophagi I've ever seen. The coffin was inscribed with a name. Shasep Amun Tayas Harit, Mistress of the House. But where did she come from? That was the mystery Sarah had to solve. She could tell a little bit about the sarcophagus just by looking at it. She dates to roughly 2,400 years ago, sort of the, what's known as the Ptolemaic period. But pinpointing the exact place that this woman was buried would help confirm that she was actually stolen and not purchased legally. The first clue was the sand. You could see kind of lots of sand in her eyes and in crevasses. And given her state of preservation and the fact that we know she comes from this time period, She obviously came from a cemetery that dated to the Ptolemaic period. It was a desert cemetery. They also had her import date, so they knew when she had been brought into the United States. And then here is where the satellites come in. Given that I had 12 years of satellite data, I sort of went from 300 sites and then, okay, only the desert sites were down to 50. Okay, desert sites that are Ptolemaic, um and our badly looted were down to eight sites. Eventually, by looking at satellite data and comparing that to the clues on the sarcophagus, Sarah figured out the original resting place of Shasep Amun Tayas Harit. I'm about 99.9% sure that she comes from this site known as Abu Sir al-Malik, which is um, a late period, so 600 BC to um, Ptolemaic and Roman period, roughly 30 BC, cemetery um, that's located near Egypt's Fayum. And figuring this out meant that Sarah could say with confidence that this sarcophagus was almost certainly stolen, not purchased legally, which is evidence that can be used in court against smugglers. What ICE can then do is take that information to a judge and say, hey, guess what? Um, you know, look, look at this report that this Egyptologist remote sensing specialist has written. Um, it's kind of beyond the shadow of a doubt that, that this piece came from this site at this time and look at the string of evidence. It's enough for a judge to say, call the case to trial. And in this case, the judge did call the case to trial. 
In 2011, Joe Lewis, along with a couple of antiquities dealers, were charged with smuggling of Egyptian antiquities and money laundering. And in 2015, our sarcophagus was returned to Egypt, along with a handful of other stolen objects. In the end, Joe Lewis, the guy who purchased this sarcophagus, did not see any jail time. After spending seven figures on his legal battle, he managed to get all charges dropped against him. He wasn't, he didn't go to prison at all, and he doesn't think he did anything wrong. But still, satellite data was able to help Sarah figure out where an artifact came from and prove that it was almost certainly stolen. And this is one of the things Sarah does. She uses satellite data to help track looting, especially in places where on-the-ground monitoring might not be possible. And one cool thing about this is that in a lot of cases, looting leaves a really clearly identifiable mark on the earth. It's very easy to identify looting pits from space in that, you know, a looter's digging down, they're going to dig room around them because they've got to move. So the looting pit is probably going to be at least a meter or two to three feet wide um, with this with this bit of earth around it. So she can look at pictures from space and look for these little donuts and be like, aha, looters, I see you. I too look for donuts in most pictures and I feel that perhaps my skills could be put to good use here. So what you can do with the satellite imagery is comparatively look at sites and look at how the looting has evolved over time. So in one image, you may have no looting. And then an image from a year later, there's hundreds of pits. And it's not just looting that she can see from space. In Peru, where we've worked a lot and very closely with their Ministry of Culture, um, that one of their biggest challenges and one of the biggest challenges everywhere in the world is, um, is development. It's not looting. It's that, you know, people are building illegally on archaeological sites. Sometimes people will claim that a house is old or was built before certain land was protected. You claim that this house has been here for 50 years, but I have this image from 2015 where there's no house and this image from 2016 where you built the house illegally. You're busted. Sarah has uncovered entire ancient Egyptian cities by looking at satellite data. And there are so many applications of this technology. Measuring deforestation is probably the most common application still today. This is Jamin Vandenhoek, a researcher at Oregon State University. Right now, for example, Brazil is in the midst of a huge boom in deforestation. Brazilian uh, rainforest deforestation has increased by 30, 40 percent from this same time last year. But we only know this because of satellite imagery. The Brazilian government is currently denying that this is happening. In fact, Brazil's president fired the head of the country's space agency because he had provided the world with this satellite data. Before satellite data, tracking deforestation was really hard because it is literally hard to see the forest through the trees. And there are all sorts of environmental issues like this. There's so many, right? Um... Ice sheet loss, glacial ice loss, um, the creation of glacial lakes where uh, in Himalayas where the glaciers have melted so much they've created these very high altitude lakes. Uh, a new one was just spotted in the Alps, which has never, had never been seen before, this melted glacier. Um, you can detect that with satellite imagery. So if it's hard to get information on the ground, you can just go up and look at it from space. 
Satellite imagery was recently instrumental in showing that China was building concentration camps to house Muslim citizens and re-educate them, quote-unquote. When the United States claimed that they were slowly phasing out Guantanamo Bay, a graduate student named Adrian Myers was able to use Google Earth satellite imagery to prove that they were, in fact, doing the opposite. He used a series of seven satellite images taken from when Guantanamo Bay was first built till recently, and he exposed what was happening there because the government was saying it's not big. Of course, the, you know, the prisoners have adequate outdoor facilities. What do you mean it's tripled in size? And so he was able to show that they, like, it, it was just a bucket of lies. Side note, I checked if you could still see Guantanamo Bay on Google Earth, if it had been blacked out or not, and you can actually look at it on Google Earth today. And when I looked it up, on the bottom left-hand side of the page, Google handily recommended an upcoming event at Guantanamo Bay, the pre-sentencing trial of a man named Majid Khan, a 39-year-old who is the only legal resident of the United States held in Guantanamo Bay that we know of. Google just like put it there as if it was like a concert or something that I might consider attending, which is very weird. Anyway, all of this is to say that the applications of satellite imagery are really broad. Sarah uses it to help solve archaeological crimes and uncover ancient, unknown sites. Jamin uses it to map refugee settlements and track the impacts of climate change. People use it to monitor the impact of crop diseases and beetle infestations, to figure out where to put solar panels, to find mineral deposits, and to snoop on the elite's private compounds in places like North Korea or Silicon Valley. And in part because satellite imagery does have so many applications, its power can sometimes be overstated. You know, initially, like any, any kind of earlier adopter, I was, I was a bit over-the-top evangelical about the technology, and I've become far, far more measured over time. Um, because, you know, where some sites in Egypt, in the Delta, like you see the outline of a whole settlement, in some cases you might see a few things, in other cases... You don't see anything. You know, so many image types have gotten free or low cost, and there's so much you can do. But also, we do need to recognize the limitations. And when we come back, we are going to talk about what satellite imagery and remote sensing can and can't do right now. And that story involves George Clooney. Now, you may call it an unreasoning optimism. You may call it obtuse. But first, a quick break. Okay, so satellite imagery is really powerful, and at this point we can get reasonably good images from almost any part of the world. And that kind of observational power, it's really alluring. So alluring that George Clooney was wooed by it. Around 2006, George Clooney got involved in the Darfur conflict. Darfur is a region in western Sudan, and in 2003, the government of Sudan began an ethnic cleansing campaign against the citizens in the region. Clooney spent some time in Chad and Sudan to make a documentary about the war there and the refugees. And in 2010, he had this idea. Why not use satellite imagery to track and out war crimes? Here is a clip from ABC about the project. The project will get high-resolution photographs of Sudan from those satellites and post them on their website. That, website. that way you at home can monitor what's going on on the ground in southern Sudan. But will the world watching make a difference? Our exclusive guest this morning, George Clooney, joining us from Los Angeles, and John Prendergast of the Enough Project here in Washington, D.C. Thank you both for joining us, George and John. Thanks for having us. So, George, happy new year, Jake. happy new year to you. So, George, I'll start with you. 
so let's say uh, in the first report, which is going to happen, as I understand it, this week, uh, you see photographic evidence of uh, war crimes, of uh, proxy militias uh, crossing the border and, and killing uh, other individuals. What do you do? Well, there's certain things you can do. First of all, if, it, if you see actual evidence of, of, uh, of, of those kind of attacks, that, that's something that you can do uh, that the UN can actually work with. But for the most part, our job is to say that these things have been happening in the dark for a long time. What happens with that is that the other Arab communities, uh, the Chinese, they all have uh, 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 the ability to deny it, to say it didn't happen. Uh, we're going to be able to, you know, not show it afterwards, but show it beforehand that there were plans, uh, there are tanks lined up, that there are helicopters online that are going to, uh, that are about to commit uh, atrocities. He used this term, the, um, we're going to be the anti-genocide paparazzi. That's Jamin Vandenhoek again. Really the aspiration was that by monitoring areas where you know that there is some sort of extremist activity, um, it could be violence, it could be abduction, it could be you know burning of villages. By monitoring those with commercial grade satellite imagery, the mere documentation and um, dissemination of those through various media and journalist outlets, that that would be enough to kind of chill the interest by these various uh, warring groups to continue carrying out these acts of, of violence and, and, um, and crimes. So, did that work? Did simply having these images, showing them, having people know that they were being watched, did any of that deter violence? Did spending millions of dollars to get high-quality satellite images and publish them for the public to see, did it make a difference? I'm not aware of any effect that can be attributed of any drawdown in violence that can be attributed to this. It was deferential. It didn't really matter that this was happening. And uh, it didn't really seem to have any effect at all on the level of violence. And there's a kind of hubris here that I think the entire satellite and remote sensing world has yet to grapple with fully. These projects are funded and run by wealthy Western countries and are generally deployed to watch over, literally, developing nations. These images are taken by satellites and beamed over to people who may have never even been to these places. There is a bit of a white savior complex there. Um, there's sort of a tone deafness and a sort of a lack of, of grappling with the reality and like the nuts and bolts challenges on the ground of these situations and of the very complex social, political, environmental, climatic, ethno-cultural divisions that underlie these some of these belligerent groups, um, their actions. Yeah, huge, huge ethical considerations. So the, the, the older model that I'm trying to get away from, you know, typically white foreigner will go to country X and work there and tell the local people how things should be done. And obviously that's not an okay model and never was an okay model and has led to all manner of, of very bad behavior and it's still going on. Often, the images taken of developing nations aren't even accessible to the people who live there because they're too expensive to purchase. In one paper by a group of Nigerian academics, they note that, quote, Whilst developing countries have no share of the remote sensing industry, they are on the receiving end of the scheme. Not only are they targets of remote cameras, the information obtained from their territories are not freely accessed by them. 
as they have to pay to receive the information, end quote. Other experts who work in this field have pointed out that this kind of view, this very literal top-down perspective, can dehumanize the people on the ground. It's like you're looking over some little toy set, a Polly Pocket world where you are totally detached and all-seeing. Jamin has done some work on using satellite imagery to help map refugee communities to figure out where these informal settlements are. Over the course of two to three months, there can be a a natural sort of vegetated landscape and then cut two, three months later, and it can be completely occupied with agriculture, with marketplace, with um, thousands of residents. So it really happens in the blink of an eye. And again, there are ethical questions here. These are refugees, by definition vulnerable, fleeing some terror wherever they once lived. Mapping them may be useful for certain things. For relief delivery, for sort of management of of aid to make sure that this newly arrived population has food, has water, um, has security, has uh, access to things like education and uh, health services and sanitation. And knowing how many people are displaced globally is important for informing policy. We talked a few seasons ago about the U.S. Census and why it's really important for marginalized groups to be counted accurately, so they can be reflected in services and funding and programs. The same goes here. So if refugee camps are left off of that, um, we've got this potential for bias where we can't account for the population that could be living there. If we don't account for where these settlements are, we're just continuing to sort of amplify these biases. We're in this echo chamber of exclusion that is just going to be perpetuated over and over and over. But, and it's a big but, mapping where vulnerable people live can also have serious safety implications. How do we deal with the risk of identification of vulnerable communities that may have just left a conflict zone, right? And it's often hard to anonymize this data without making it useless. This is, you know, a new refugee population um, on the border of Uganda that fled South Sudan. There's a handful of those sites, right? It's automatically filtered down to these generally known locations. And there's this kind of weird gap here that I think is about to get way more problematic as satellites get better and better. As with any discipline, there are whole subfields of satellite imagery and remote sensing. And a lot of the time, they don't talk to one another. So I asked Jamin about a paper I read critiquing satellite imagery and the ways that it can reinforce state control. And he hadn't heard of the paper because it was published in an international relations journal, not a remote sensing journal. People who do environmental sensing, who use these satellites to understand things like weather patterns and land use, They use imagery that's pretty coarse, which means that it can't see individual houses, let alone individual humans. So they basically never think about this stuff. Most remote sensing doesn't work that way. Most is environmental, like broad scale landscape change, which may or may not be tied to a group or community, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a blind spot is, is thinking about people. People that do remote sensing don't think about human beings often. They think about them as agents of change or as land managers. So you don't have to go far. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? No, it's a total blind spot, right? Because it, it, it's a bad thing, I think. It, it, there's like this ignorance um, because it's so environmentally focused or biophysically focused. 
you don't end up having this awareness. You, you don't end up asking, I think, the best questions, the most probing questions. I would just like to say, for the record, that I think the idea that landscapes and the environment are completely separate from humans and human activity is kind of a weird position to take. Humans have been shaping the landscape for a very, very long time. And humans have had a cultural, political relationship with the land for just as long. The idea that sensing and taking data on landscapes doesn't have to engage with the people who call those landscapes home just because the imagery doesn't see them individually, specifically, is very weird to me. So, for example, in many Native American communities, certain landscapes are sacred. And in some situations, specific parts of the landscape are so sacred that only certain members of the tribe are allowed to see them. But with Google Earth, anybody can look at these places and gaze upon a spot that this community sees as special and off limits. Is that something that folks in the sort of like environmental sensing world think about at all ever in terms of like you're looking at something that to some people is sacred and shouldn't be seen? No, never. (laughs) Never. I mean, I would be completely shocked if that was on anyone's radar. Um, people think about that in terms of like, oh, I'm looking at the Pentagon, right? I, I'm looking on top of the Pentagon. There are these places that are intentionally blurred out from, from uh, high resolution imagery, like on Google Maps, space map. But it's not, it's not, it's no, not at all. I mean, name your sacred place. You'll have thousands and thousands of images taken of it. Yeah. yeah. Is that something yeah. you think people should be thinking about more? about not collecting imagery over areas? Um, no. Um, I mean, I'm an atheist, so I, I don't really... Um, um, no, <laughs> I, I don't. I, I don't think that there's any uh, danger to that. I wasn't sure if that was something that like people in your field are thinking about ever. Oh, no. <laughs> I can't tell you how far of a left field question that would be to a typical remote sensor. I was really surprised to hear that. So I actually called up Sarah Parkak again over the weekend while she was baking. I, I, I yeah, I, I needed a little break before I dive into the peach chutney, so. Um. <laughs> and she very graciously answered a few more questions for me about this stuff. And I asked her if it was true. Is it totally out of left field to ask about this? And she said, no, she thinks about it literally every day. I think a lot of the ills of the world could be solved if everyone took an anthropology 101 class at some point. Like hum- human ecology, it's covered in the first two weeks. Like it's, it's so important. And yes, okay, you might be, I don't know, mapping shadows that, that show you where elephants are deep in the Okavanga Delta. But my colleagues who work there will tell you that they encounter anthropogenic activity in the middle of nowhere. So, of course, humans are are an essential part of the story. Even if you think you're just mapping elephants, you're still often looking at land that people live on. And some of those people are more vulnerable than others. Look at what's happening in the Amazon right now with Bolsonaro, with the Amazon getting cut down and more and more. And I don't think we're hearing about this as much in the news because of his authoritarian regime, but indigenous um, groups are being forced out. 
And on the one hand, when you're doing high-resolution monitoring, you are you know, tracking the destruction of the rainforest and trying to do your best to inform people. On the other hand, you end up exposing the locations of a lot of these groups. And the government of Brazil does not have their best interests in mind. I don't think any government has ever had their best interests in mind. And that goes for my question about mapping sacred lands in the United States, too. Now, there might be cases where having satellite imagery of these places helps protect them by helping prove, and I'm using air quotes here because the power dynamics of who has to prove that something is important is extremely skewed. But this data could help prove that these sites are sacred. You know, if, a, if someone from an indigenous group says, hey, this whole landscape is sacred, it's been in, you know, we've been worshiping the space for thousands of years and the U.S. government wants to develop it. And it's like, it's just a bunch of mountains. But if you can use the satellite imagery to say, actually, it's, it's not just mountains. I mean, number one, take an anthropology course. Number two, there are 37 distinct, clear archaeological sites on the surface alone. But if tagging and mapping those places does more harm than good to those communities, then you shouldn't do it. But I think if you work with the, the indigenous groups and it's all about intent and it's all about their wishes, and if you, you're placing their wishes ahead of your research goals, because that's how it should be, then I think, I think you've done the best job you can. Sarah is currently working on a project with the Indian government, where she's building a tool for people in India to be able to look at their archaeological history from space. And that project is driven by folks in India and what they want. And people got excited about training. They got excited about documentation of sites under threat from development. And they got very excited about the idea of everyone in India participating in the discovery of their own heritage. Now, Obviously, there is a lot of complexity here, right? India is currently embroiled in controversy over its decision to revoke Kashmir's autonomy and impose its rule over the state. And you can't separate projects like this, projects that work with governments to reveal and celebrate history from these kinds of politics. There is always a selection of whose history gets celebrated, which sites that are revealed by satellite data get attention, and which ones don't. For a long time, remote sensing people and satellite mapping people have been able to get around the question of surveillance because the pictures they get are not good enough to identify individual people. Some of them have have a resolution as good as 11 inches or 0.3 meters. Some of them have a resolution, say, of a kilometer. And when I say resolution, I mean when you zoom in and zoom in and zoom in, that means the pixel, the individual pixel is roughly the size of an iPad or roughly the size of... I don't know, a small town. If in the highest resolution pictures the researchers can get, a pixel is the size of an iPad, that means that you can't do things like facial recognition from space, because the face would basically just be like one pixel. Of course, we are not talking about spy satellites here or government satellites. Those are a lot better than what people like Sarah and Jamin can get, something like 30 centimeter resolution. But even commercial satellites, they're getting better all the time. In fact, you might not even need faces to identify people from space at all. When we come back, we're going to talk about how even if you are wearing a full ski mask to thwart facial recognition satellite imagery, your heart might give you away. 
And if we can identify someone, an individual someone, from space, should we? But first, a break. Okay, so there are thousands of satellites out there now. There are about to be thousands more watching us constantly. Last week, we talked about how inaccurate facial recognition can be and how hard it is to get a good photo with your face in the right lighting and the right angle to work with the system. All that means that facial recognition from space is probably a little ways away. But what if I told you that facial recognition is almost a red herring, a system that's hard to implement and easy to thwart with jewelry or masks? It turns out that the future of human recognition probably isn't facial recognition. It's deeper, inside your body. Our heart is unique, not just the shape of the heart, but also the biological structure of the heart. This is Wen Yao Shu, a professor at State University of New York in Buffalo. And he has developed a heart reader. Not a dating app, but a service that can look deep into your chest, measure your heart, and figure out who you are. Did you know that every person's heart is as different as their fingerprints? I did not until researching this episode. Now, it's not just your heartbeat. It is your whole heart, including, like, the shape of it. Heartbeat, just one way of the heart motion representation. What right now we refer to the uniqueness of the heart is the biological structure and the shape of the heart. So even if you are exercising or you just got a mean email from your boss and your heart is racing, it is still identifiable as your heart. We, we can think about like a car, no matter it is in steel or it's in motion, it is still that car, right? So Wen Yao and his team developed a little device that you can put in a room that reads people's heart identities. So the size of that scan looks like a credit card. And this little credit card-sized sensor uses radar to scan the room for hearts. You don't have to touch it. You don't even have to face it. It will uh, send the uh, uh, radio frequency signals to the people and then read the reflection from the people. And then we can obtain the heart information. And this can work with a whole group of people. You can put one of these sensors in the corner of a room and it can pick out people in a crowd. But what about people with modified hearts, like people with pacemakers? Does having some sort of pacemaker or some sort of like artificial help in your heart, whether that's like, you know, various, there's all sorts of right kind of like cyborg type things that people can have when they have heart procedures. Does that change your heart biometrics? Uh, right, certainly. Like a uh, plastic surgery changes the uh, uh, face. And if we do the surgery or put a pacemaker on our heart, it will change the structure and the size of the heart. Yes. And like, is that, I know you said like every person has a different heart, but like if two people have the same pacemaker installed, are, are they going to have the same biometrics or will they, will they still be identifiable? It is still identifiable. And uh, but uh, the after surgery, uh, a heart ID will be different from before surgery. That's for sure. So if you want to evade detection, at least for a while in this heart biometric future, you could, in theory, put a pacemaker in and change the signal that your heart gives off. Now, before we get into the uh, like scary parts here, 
let's hear what Wenyao thinks some of the good applications could be for this technology. One is for things like passwords for your computer. Yeah, so we can tune the uh, the power, the range of the sensor to make it proper in some specific application. For example, for personal computer, we will limit the authentication range within, for example, one meter. If the user step away, then it's going to unlock her uh, computer. And he says there are advantages to using hearts compared to, say, faces or fingerprints as passwords. Heart-based uh, biometric is invisible. Unlike uh, the fingerprint or face, those information can be easily be uh, disclosed in the in the current uh, social media. Like someone uploads the their photos in the Facebook, then malicious user might uh, you know e- extract the face and the fingerprinting information. And this has happened. Hackers have managed to replicate fingerprints of famous people based on high-resolution photographs. Hearts are more secure in this way. It would be pretty hard to create a heart to spoof someone's security system. If you have figured out how to 3D print a working heart replica, maybe you should use it for good, like to help all the people who need hearts, instead of using it to get into your cheating boyfriend's phone. Dump him, donate the hearts, everybody wins. Now, why am I talking about this? I thought we were talking about satellites. Well, here is the thing. Right now, the system Wenyao has developed does not work beyond a kilometer, which is a little over half a mile, and we should all switch to the metric system anyway. One kilometer is already pretty far, but theoretically, it could work from way further. With the technology development, I wouldn't say that's going to be the ultimate bound. One story I read in MIT Tech Review features this quote from Stuart Remily, who works at the Pentagon. He says, quote, I don't want to say you could do it from space, but longer ranges should be possible. In other words, the military probably could do this from space at some point. And it's not just heartbeat monitors. Satellite imagery is about to get a lot better on almost all fronts. We haven't entered the golden age yet. It's, it's just starting. There are some systems that are going to be promising every, uh, an image every 15 minutes at uh, like one meter resolution everywhere around the globe. That, I mean, we're entering into this, this new era of a virtual panopticon uh, of commercial sensing. We're almost certainly already there with, uh, with classified imagery. Almost certainly this is, this is common in, in the classified world. It's super terrifying, and you think, um, like, uh, facial recognition technology. What happens if from space we can do facial recognition technology? and identify where people are and where they're moving, and is this going to be Big Brother? Um, and, and of course, as always, um, you know, people of color and the LGBT population, like, like of course they're going to be targeted. Um, so what does that mean? What are things we can do to safeguard against this? In the not-so-distant future, it is possible that commercial-grade satellites could be able to identify individual human beings in satellite imagery, which means that Sarah could, in theory, catch individual looters and name them. But even if she could, she's not so sure she would. Right now, Sarah's work just says, hey, here is where some looting has happened. We're not pinpointing specific communities. Um, we, we only show looting on sites. We don't cast any guilt. 
And that's because looting is a really complicated problem connected to politics and war and hunger. A lot of people I work with in these villages are looters, and they're not bad people. They're doing whatever we would do to survive in the same situation. Most of these looters are themselves refugees and victims of violent regimes. Of course, you have to think through how the data you share um, and the... um, The information you're collecting is assisting rather than putting additional targets on people on the ground who are either living in camps or in villages uh, or on or next to archaeological sites. Sarah says that identifying the people actually digging the holes, going down into the pits and taking things out of the ground, that's not necessarily something she wants to do. She'd rather talk about the powerful, wealthy people who create this market, who pay for these objects. In other words, go for Joe Lewis, the millionaire collecting these objects, not the refugees who dig them up. Last week, we talked about facial recognition and how just because we could, in theory, track everybody as they move around the world all the time, that doesn't necessarily mean that we should. And this satellite imagery stuff, makes this not just a city-to-city problem or a state problem or even a national problem. It makes it a global one. And there are so many unanswered questions here, like how does this evidence get used in court? Google Earth evidence has been used in court cases in the United States before, but never individually identifying information because it hasn't been possible. But when it becomes possible, there are a whole lot of legal questions around whether this information would even be admissible. This question has come up with drone surveillance before, and we talked about it a little bit in the Eyes in the Sky episode. And there is some legal precedent, but it's kind of murky. In a landmark case from 1986, in which the government busted a marijuana farm in California by taking photos of the farm from an airplane, the court decided that, quote, The Fourth Amendment simply does not require the police traveling in the public airways at this altitude to obtain a warrant in order to observe what is visible to the naked eye. So, airspace is public, just like outer space. And if you can see something with your naked eye from a plane or a satellite, that is not protected under the Fourth Amendment. But being able to scan someone's heart or face from 35,000 kilometers above the Earth That is not something you can do with the naked eye. So that precedent probably doesn't apply. And things get even more complicated when you start to cross national lines. What happens when an American archaeologist using a private company's satellite spots a crime in India? We have no idea. But eventually, we will find out. Because eventually, this will be possible. And we are not ready. That's all for this episode. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Eveleth. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hustleonia. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. Special thanks to Veronica Simonetti and Aaron Latz at the Women's Audio Mission, which is where all of the intro scenes were recorded this season. If you did not catch the little note at the end of last episode, just a quick note, all of the intro scenes for this season are sort of special. The teens that came in to act actually wrote their own lines and had their own debates, so this was mostly unscripted. 
Um, and things happen that I would not have scripted myself, and I'm really excited about it and super stoked that the actors were so good and so lovely and so nice to each other. Special thanks to Evan Johnson, who plays Mr. Morton, and also who coordinated those actors of the junior acting troupe. Today's debaters were played by Charlie Chalmers and Grace Nelligan. If you want to hear the students debate this topic further, you can hear the full cut of their conversation by becoming a patron at $5 an episode or more, which gets you access to the bonus podcast. If you want to discuss books with fellow listeners, wow, you're in luck. You can join the book club by becoming a $7 patron. This month, we are reading Because Internet, Understanding the New Rules of Language by Gretchen McCulloch. If you want to discuss the future in general, or just this show or this episode, you can do that with listeners on the totally free Facebook group. Is it ironic that this show has a Facebook group, given how much I am always yelling about privacy? Yes, it is. But people asked for it, and who am I to deny you what you desire? So just search Facebook for Flash Forward Podcast and ask to join. I will add you as quickly as I can. And if you like the show, please consider leaving a nice review on iTunes. Yes, against everyone's advice, I read every single review. So thank you to Ben Huff, who said, quote, This is the podcast that finally got me into podcasts after people telling me to listen to them for the past decade. It's me, the podcast gateway drug. So if you like the show, please do consider leaving a review. They help more people find the show, and they make me feel good when they are nice. The not nice ones make me feel bad, and I do read those too, sadly. If you want to suggest a future I should take on, send me a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. I love hearing your ideas. You can also find me, Rose, and the show on Instagram. There are two different accounts. One is Rose Eveleth on Instagram. The other one is just flashforwardpod. I often post pictures related to the episode. So this week, I'll be posting a bunch of satellite imagery for you to look at um, and other fun stuff. So you can find that at Instagram at flashforwardpod. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references I've hidden in this episode, you can email me at info at flashforwardpod.com. If you are right, I will send you something cool. Okay, that's all for this future. Come back next time and we'll travel to a new one. Everybody be cool. You be cool.